Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and we're coming to you from the southern end of the beautiful Niagara region in Ontario. Each week, this podcast takes you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years uh, where we explore all the hockey news from that time period. In this episode, we're examining the week of November 29th to December 5th, 1970. This podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Uh, Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and their support's been absolutely crucial to uh, enable us to access all the news stories from 50 years ago. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal and Lake Erie. The folks at the Breakwall make some of the finest craft beers in Ontario, and they also have some of the best pub food on the planet. When everything seems to return back to normal, I'd love to meet any of our listeners for a beer and a burger at the Breakwall. We'd also like to remind you about our new Patreon account. Uh, We hope that everyone who's subscribed so far is enjoying the special content. And a big shout out to our newest subscriber, Gare. I hope you're enjoying all the special stuff that we're putting up there for you. Uh, You can help us pay the bills by going to patreon.com slash hockey50years to donate. It helps us keep the lights on and bring you all this great content. And we thank all of you who subscribed so far. Now, last week, we had a a interesting week, some pretty good stories. We talked about Gordie Howe. He had a big game with the Red Wings, and then near the end of the game, he got hurt, injured some ribs, a very painful injury. And, uh, of course, that was a thing that the beleaguered Red Wing Club just didn't need. We got to know a little bit more about Maple Leaf rookie forward Daryl Sittler, whom writers in other NHL cities were calling the Tom Sawyer of the Maple Leafs. Just a good kid uh, who looks like he's got a bright future. And during last week, we heard Daryl score his very first National Hockey League goal. And we had another story about uh, a new arena looking for an NHL team that was in Long Island, New York, and the Nassau County Coliseum. And we talked about the people who were behind movement to put hockey teams in that rink. This week was another very busy week on and off the ice in the National Hockey League in 1970. Uh, we have the results of some of the key games, and one of those key games uh, was uh, a match between the Philadelphia Flyers and the Vancouver Canucks, where Andre Lacroix scored three goals just the night after he was benched by his coach, Vic Stasiuk, uh, for actually for one of the flimsiest of reasons. He wasn't benched because of poor play, but... You know what, even newspapers in other cities noticed it and were hoping that Coach Stasiuk would bench Lacroix when he played against them again. We'll also talk about the ongoing saga of the coaching regime of Montreal's Claude Ruel. Uh, Things seem to be building up over the last couple weeks and... uh, It all came to an end on Thursday of this week, 50 years ago. And there's also some news coming out of Toronto about an impending shakeup in the management structure of Maple Leaf Gardens. And of course, that would include the Maple Leafs. We have details on that. And by the way, also with the Leafs, we'll talk a little bit about Mike Walton. First up this week, we have some of the week's more interesting game results. 
After being crushed by Toronto on Saturday evening by a 9-4 score and where rookie Daryl Sittler uh, scored his first National Hockey League goal, the Detroit Red Wings uh, went home to the Olympia uh, in front of a bunch of fans who were spoiling for a fight, it seemed. They, they weren't happy with the way the Red Wings going, but those fans quickly were delighted by the Red Wings' inspired play as they upset the Montreal Canadiens by a 5-3 score. And that, well, maybe not was so much of an upset because the Canadians at this time are in a bit of disarray as well. And they may not even make the playoffs the way things are going in Montreal. Spurred by a couple of veterans who can still come up with the big games, namely Frank Mahovlich and Alex Delvecchio, the unpredictable Red Wings caught the Canadians flat-footed for two periods and skated off with a 5-3 win at the Olympia. With Delvecchio just four days away from his 39th birthday doing the spade work and connecting for two goals while Mahovlich was dangerous every time he was on the ice, the Red Wings simply out, out, out house of Montreal for a 4-1 lead and then held on for their first win in three tries against the Habs this season. The Big M actually connected for the 399th goal of his illustrious National Hockey League career, while the other Detroit scores came off the sticks of Wayne Connolly and Gary Unger, who's been in Coach Ned Harkness's doghouse pretty much all season. John Ferguson was the best of a very poor lot of Montreal forwards in this game. He scored his first goal in the sixth game of his comeback so far this year. Mickey Redman and Yvonne Cornway, with his 13th in just 15 games, got third period markers as the Canadians staged a belated comeback, but once again, it was a case of too little, too late for the Habs. This game marked the first National Hockey League action for rookie goalie Don McLeod, a 24-year-old who hails from Trail, British Columbia. This was his... Uh, Second, actually, NHL appearance as he got his first taste of big league action the previous evening in Toronto during that 9-4 thrashing that the Maple Leafs hung on the Red Wings. Uh, Don made enough clutch saves among the 37 Montreal shots he faced to earn one of the three-star ratings at the Olympia. Phil Mir, who has had better nights in the Montreal goal, faced 32 shots from what was sort of a, an inspired Red Wing attack for a change, but several times uh, Mir was left all by himself as his defense mates, all five of them, were absolutely terrible on this night, and in a lot of the play, it looked like they were just going through the motions. Motivation seems to be a factor for this Canadians team right now, and especially on defense. It seems that Canadians don't believe in body checks anymore, and the Red Wings simply coasted in and out of their zone at will, meeting very little resistance from anyone. Referee Lloyd Gilmore handed out 14 penalties, including majors, to Claude LaRose and Gary Unger, Pete Mahovlich, Mark Tardif, Jerry Hart, and Nick Libet, and all of those were for fighting. This loss left the disorganized Canadians with only three wins in their last 10 games and only four points ahead of Vancouver for third place in the Eastern Division, and that kind of performance is not going to get the Habs into the playoffs this season.
Del Vecchio's first goal came on a weird play after he barely touched the puck on Dale Rolfe's shot off the backboards. Now, Phil Mir, the Montreal goalie, tried to clear it, but he reached out and knocked it into his own net. Uh, an own goal that Phil certainly would love to have back. Del Vecchio's second goal came off a great play, not a weird play like his first one. Uh, it was Frank Mahovlich's pass across the goal mouth during a penalty to his brother Pete of the Canadians. Mir didn't have a chance when Alex wrapped a 15-footer into the open side before he could slide across to make the play. John Ferguson's goal was a result of a deflection off his stick on Terry Harper's low drive from the Detroit Blue Line. However, the Wings took only 83 seconds to get that one back when Serge Savard and then Guy Lapointe were caught flat-footed. Wayne Connolly cut past both defensemen to beat Mir cleanly on a shot from a not-so-severe angle. That made the final score 5-3 for the Red Wings, and after the game, Coach Ruel had very little to say. Uh, even assistant coach Al McNeil, who seems to be very supportive of Glott, would make no excuses for his players. And uh, Montreal newspaper writers who were assembled in either dressing room had a lot of remarks about possible changes being made in Montreal sooner rather than later. Everyone who's watching the Montreal Canadiens at this point in time realizes that things like this cannot go on very long in the city of Montreal. That They just won't stand for it. Our second highlighted game of the week involved the first of a home-and-home -home series between the Vancouver Canucks and the Philadelphia Flyers. In Philadelphia on Sunday evening, the Flyers took out the surprisingly effective Canucks this season by a score of 4-2. to two. Andre Lacroix, who vanished dramatically in Chicago for the Flyers the night before, reappeared in the spectrum and performed the finale of his magic act. His disappearance the night before wasn't Andre's fault. Inexplicably, the offensively challenged Flyers benched their best offensive player in a game against the powerful Blackhawks. That was coach Vic Stasiak's doing, and his only excuse was he wanted a little more toughness on the ice. Lacroix sat on the bench most of the game, and you could see he was fuming. Stasiuk said after that game he wasn't trying to motivate Lacroix. He just wanted a better combination on the ice. Didn't work anyway. Well, in this game against the Canucks, Lacroix ended up scoring three times for the hat trick in the 4-2 win. That strengthened Philadelphia's grip on fourth place in the NHL's Western Division. After the game uh, in Philadelphia against Vancouver, Lacroix said, sure, it bothered me not to play against Chicago. Lacroix said he had come to the rink feeling really good, really strong, and ready to play. And then Stasiuk uh, didn't even tell him that he wasn't going to play in this game. He just sat him on the bench, never explained a thing. Uh, seems like not a really good plan with one of your more prominent players. Lacroix's benching, uh, as we mentioned, it wasn't punitive. Ekstasiuk said, I thought he played his best game ever in a Flyer uniform in the previous game against New York. And that's how he rewards the guy. 
but it was a special situation in Chicago where we were willing to keep Andre and uh, Jean-Guy Gendron off the ice in order to have Simon Nolet up against Bobby Hall checking him. Seems like you're cutting off your nose to spite your face, Vic. That kind of stuff just doesn't work in the National Hockey League. But Stasiak, ever the rationalizer, said that the two guys who didn't play in Chicago were the guys who did the scoring tonight, so I guess the rest must have helped them. Sure. Now, of course, those who would uh, dispute Stasiak's wisdom in these moves had to wonder whether it was the rest or a desire to show their coach how boneheaded he had been benching them in the first place. Stasiak, he's an ardent disciple of the late Vince Lombardi, allowed himself an expansive grin and said, it's supposed to be that way. They're supposed to show me up. Was the benching of Lacroix part of a psychological move then? Stasiak was inscrutable and he wouldn't answer that question. Only he knows for sure. Well, in this game against the uh, fledgling Canucks, Lacroix reappeared with vengeance. Skating with strangers, or at the very least unfamiliar line mates, he rammed in one goal in the first period, two more in the second, to pick up his third National Hockey League hat trick. And as for an encore, the little center assisted on a power play goal by Gendron in the final period that released the pent-up tension for an audience, a very appreciable spectrum audience of 14,382 good crowds in Philadelphia this season once again. Lacroix's hat trick ended a long slump that the little center had been in. Uh, he'd gone 15 games without a goal and uh, both of his three goals and four points tied single Flyers games records in their young three-year history. Remarkably, Andre collected all three of his goals while traveling an unaccustomed company. That is, he had new line mates. In the first period, what happened was that the line, uh, his French line, the line mates changed on the fly. Lacroix was slow getting off the ice. He was left on the ice with a couple of other players, and that's how he got his first goal. And his second period goals came while he was skating as a fourth forward on the power play. The Canucks matched Lacroix's opener with a goal by Murray Hall late in the first period and followed Andre's final goal with one by Danny Johnson late in the second session. After that, Flyers goalie Bernie Perrant shut the door, gave the Vancouver Canucks absolutely nothing to shoot at to make the final 4-2. Dunk Wilson was the Canucks goalie on this night, and he's a former Philadelphia Flyer prospect himself. He was drafted by the Canucks in the expansion draft. Lacroix explained why Wilson lost the game. Not often hear players actually criticize an opponent, but Lacroix did with Wilson. He said, my first goal was just a rebound that Dunk couldn't do anything about. But those two in the second period, both from around the left point, Dunk never moved so he could see past the people standing there in front of him. He has a tendency to do that. If there are people in front of him, he just stands in the net and hopes the puck will hit one of them or will hit him. Both of my shots were into the corner of the net and he couldn't pick up the puck in time to stop him because he hadn't moved out so he could see me. That's a a rare criticism of a goalkeeper from an opposing forward and kind of enjoy the the candid nature of Andre Lacroix in, in this instance. 
So we have there the final score, 4-2 for the Flyers. A big game for Andre Lacroix. Some great goalkeeping by Bernie Perrant. Some less than great goalkeeping by the Canucks' Dunk Wilson. And it was a very, very important win for the Flyers over a Vancouver team that has been the surprise of the NHL early in the 1970-71 season. Our third highlighted game of the week is a Wednesday evening contest at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto between the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Los Angeles Kings. And this game was significant because of the play of Toronto captain Davey Keon, who scored three times in a 7-0 Toronto route of the Los Angeles squad. Red Burnett of the Toronto Star uh, provided most of our reporting on, on this account of the game. Dan Proudfoot, also of the Global Mail, Dan is, also had a, a pretty good report. After the 7-0 uh, win by uh, the Leafs, before 16-329 in Toronto. Leafs assistant coach, general manager, all-round good guy King Clancy said, with Jacques stopping them and Dave popping them, this team could make the playoffs. I don't think I've ever seen Keon play a better game for us is what Clancy had to say. He also said that uh, he turned in some fabulous performances during his career. Dave has him with that kind of leadership. The Leafs really do have a chance to make the playoffs. The victory over the Kings moved Toronto three points ahead of seventh place Buffalo in the National Hockey League's Eastern Division. And this was by far their most impressive outing of the season, no doubt about that. Plant, uh, relaxing after the game, his first shutout of the season, 74th in his illustrious career, looked over at Keon in the dressing room and said, it's wonderful watching him perform from the Leaf goal. I saw way too much of him when I was at the other end of the rink. Plot marvels at uh, Keon's skill with the puck. Uh, he said that there are very few players with more moves going in on a goalie than Dave Keon. He can shift you out of your suit, Plot said, and beat you with a forehand or backhand shot. You got a demonstration in this game. All three of his goals were big league masterpieces. Plant went on to say that Dave Keon is proof that it's not the size of the body, but the size of the heart that counts in hockey. Jacques said, I don't think he has ever exploited his skills to better advantage. A hat trick and two of the goals were while we were shorthanded. That's six for him in four games. Just unbelievable. Dave Keon, hotter than a firecracker. Now, here's an interesting fact about Keon's performance this season. Uh, you remember he held out in training camp, wanted $125,000, settled for somewhere around eighty. Well, he has scored six shorthanded goals this season with the two in this game, and that betters the team record he set last season when he had five. He is now just one short of the National Hockey League record of seven shorthanded goals in the season set by Jerry Tapazzini, who was with the Boston Bruins back in 1957-58. George Armstrong, the former Leaf captain who recently made yet another comeback to the team, said that Keon uh, was just unbelievable. He, George, by the way, was one of the three stars in this game. And he said, I wouldn't say I hadn't seen Keon play a better game. 
He's played so many great ones with the Leafs, it's hard to compare them. But speaking of great games, the old man and George, the old man himself, referring referring to 41-year-old Plant, said he has uh, reflexes of a 21-year-old, and Jock was just out of this world. George said, I know we were one going away, but there was an eight-minute spell in the second period when he held us together. Armstrong went on to say that Plant stop on Bill Flett early in the third period with the score only 3-0 really broke the Kings' hearts. George was the third star in the game, by the way, behind Keon and Plant, but he thought that Norm Ullman was the better player on that night. Ullman showed them a few nifty moves, and he checked like a tiger, according to George, who said, I don't know how I rated third star. <laughs> Keon's three goals gives him 13 for the season already this year. Allman moved to a total of 11 and uh, the final goal of 1937 of the third period. Ron Ellis had a pair of goals. He now has seven on the year. And Daryl Sittler scored his third goal in as many games. And that one put the Leafs in front to stay at 636 of the opening period. This was the first league goal that the Leafs had scored on Kings goalie Jack Norris in three NHL games that he's faced him. He shut him out as a Boston Bruin and the Chicago Blackhawks, but he couldn't stem the tide this night uh, as the Leafs were all over the Kings in this one. There was a lot of on and off nice ice news going on in the National Hockey League this week, and we'll get to that right now. One of the ongoing stories has been the always contentious relationship between the Montreal Canadiens coach Claude Ruel and some of his various players, and at times all of them. Now, this is nothing new. Ruel always seems to be feuding with somebody on the team at any given time. And early in the week, Pat Curran of the Montreal Gazette possibly sensing a change was in the offing, wrote about Ruel's issues. Now, maybe Pat, well-connected to Montreal management, was sending a signal to fans that something was up. Curran wrote, no matter how badly their team is going, athletes don't want to be singled out as troublemakers. Thus, you won't read any quotes from the players about the problems of the Canadians who have been falling more and more after a fine start this season. Just take this from somebody close enough to the players to know. There's a lack of harmony between Claude Ruel and his charges. Serious enough for a motion that the coach must go or at least change his ways if the Habs are going to fare any better than their non-playoff finish last spring. Pat Curran knew the score, so did Habs management, and the inevitable move happened on Thursday morning when word came out that Claude Ruel was being replaced by assistant coach Al McNeil. Unlike Ruel, Al was a National Hockey League player for Toronto, Chicago, New York, Montreal, and Pittsburgh in the big league. He was never a, a great star or anything like that, but he was good enough to be a solid player in a six-team NHL. He'd been honing his coaching skills in the Montreal organization for the past couple of years after retiring as a player. General Manager Sam Pollock said that he informed McNeil that Ruel was being let go and Al offered his resignation right away as well. Pollock surprised McNeil by refusing to accept said resignation and instead he asked Al to take over the team and he agreed to do so. 
Now, this is a very complex, very interesting story about the legendary Canadians franchise, and we will take a much deeper dive into all the facts around this in an upcoming bonus episode uh, of the 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast for our Patreon subscribers, and that'll happen in the very near future. Still with the Montreal organization, but nothing so uh, dramatic as a coaching change. The trainer and assistant trainer of the Montreal Voyageurs of the American Hockey League were charged with disorderly conduct in Providence, Rhode Island of all places after they became involved in a fracas with a fan who jumped onto the bench during an American Hockey League game. The fan, who was one of about a gang a half dozen who charged the Voyagers bench, apparently engaged in a fist fight with several of the Montreal players. The brawl then spilled onto the ice before it was finally broken up by local police. The trainers... Tim Joffrey, 21, and John Davis, 20, were charged for their part in the Donnybrook. No players were arrested, and there were no word if any of the fans faced any charges as well. A nice note by a young defenseman named Jerry Korab, just recalled recently by the Chicago Blackhawks from the Western Hockey League, Portland Buckaroos. Jerry scored his first National League goal for the Blackhawks in a game this week against the LA Kings, who seem to be giving up milestones to everybody these days. We don't pay as much attention as we should to the Minnesota North Stars franchise, so not prominent in the newspapers in our area but we are looking into all the papers from the league at this time well last year charlie burns was let go at the end of the season as a north stars playing coach and to be fair to charlie he did not have much to work with on that team now everybody pretty much figured that charlie's playing days were behind him now but the new Stars coach was a fellow by the name of Jackie Gordon, who was legendary as a, the uh, mentor of the Cleveland Barons of the AHL. Well, Gordon wanted Charlie to stay on as a player, and Charlie agreed, and Jack is very glad he did. Here's what Jack Gordon had to say about Charlie Burns. Burns's play is an example of the man's character. Our best checking line of Burns Buster Harvey and Danny O'Shea has also developed into our best scoring line and Burns deserves the credit for this. Gordon went on to say that at different times uh, he asked Charlie about things he's not familiar with with the team and uh, Charlie always has the answer but he never offers suggestions about how Gordon should coach the team and that's a very classy move by Charlie. Jackie Gordon said many times in meetings We'll talk about last year's weaknesses, and Burns was right there, but he'll never say a word about it. Gordon also said that when he took the job last spring, uh, he and Ren Blair discussed the status of Burns, who finished the 69-70 season as a playing coach. Even though general manager Blair was anxious to go with younger players, there was never any doubt in Gordon's mind that they would keep Burns as a player. The only problem was where they might use him. Well, Burns went on to finish up by saying Burns has certainly contributed a lot more than we expected. And Charlie Burns, a good guy, having a good twilight of his career in Minnesota. Now, this is a big story that started to surface this week, although there's been rumblings going on, and probably this story will have a profound effect on the fortunes of the Toronto Maple Leafs Hockey Club 
as we move into the 1970s. Stafford Smythe, who vowed in June of 1969 that he would regain his presidency of Maple Leaf Gardens, from which he was dumped by antagonistic directors, is going to make good on that prediction, according to reports in the Toronto Star and Globe and Mail. There's a meeting being held of the board of directors on December 17th. That's the Gardens annual general meeting. Now, here is how Smythe and his uh, partner in crime, literally Harold Ballard, are going to pull this off. Most of the directors who opposed Smythe and Ballard at the time that they were booted from their executive positions won't be standing for re-election to the board of directors. Now, this is going to include John Bassett, the chairman of the board, whose whose, uh, vote in June of 69 was supposed to have been the one that resulted in the ouster of Smythe and Ballard in the first place. As a bit of history on this, that 1969 action stemmed from the dissatisfaction of the board over the financial affairs at Maple Leaf Gardens, one of the most successful sports operations on the continent and possibly the world. Both Smythe and Ballard later were charged with income tax evasion by the Canadian government. At the time of the roaster, many records of garden business already had been seized by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police who conducted this investigation. Now, the situation gets murkier when a York County York County judge by the name of Joseph Kelly recently refused to hear the charges against Smythe. He agreed with the contention of Smythe's lawyers that the rights of the accused had been jeopardized because the sections under which the charges were laid contravened the Canadian Bill of Rights. The Income Tax Department has announced it's going to seek to reverse that decision as well it should. Now, charges against Ballard haven't been heard and probably will not come to trial because of the outcome of the Smythe case. John Bassett, whom many people feel should be the man running Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, confirmed that uh, he was departing from the board of directors, and he emphasized that there would be no proxy fight. Such a test, he indicated, could have only one result. Bassett said that between Smythe and Ballard, they represent about 40% of Maple Leaf Gardens stock. About 39% of that stock is not held or controlled by the three of us, that meaning the other uh, directors. For me to gain control, Bassett says, I would have to get about 30 of that 39%, and there's just no way I can do it. So Bassett just said, okay, boys, you represent your 40% of the shares. You should have your own board, and I'm out of here. John Bassett was known as pretty much a straight shooter, a good guy, and I think he could see just how Maple Leaf Gardens was going to be run in the future under a Ballard and Smythe regime. Now, one thing we do know is that Ballard and Smythe have recompensed the board for an amount in excess of that which is in dispute with the income tax people. In other words, they've paid money back that they shouldn't probably have had out of Maple Leaf Gardens funds anyway. Now, uh, Bassett said that we had a meeting of the board last week and the auditors, Ballard and Smythe, of course, were there. And here's where emotion at their request was passed that really 
uh, alters the executive uh, hierarchy of Maple Leaf Gardens. The motion was passed to reduce the number of directors on the board from 20 to 9. That will be done at the annual meeting on December 17th, according to John Bassett. And that's where Ballard and Smythe will regain control of Maple Leaf Garden. Still with the Maple Leafs, you may remember that uh, a week or so ago we told you about a serious back injury suffered by young defenseman Brad Selwood of the Maple Leafs. Well, the doctors have been busy evaluating that uh, spinal injury and uh, they revealed that the young rear guard is going to be out of action for at least six more weeks with disc problems in the back and it's going to take a while for this to be healed. And another medical note, Mike Walton, the young forward of the Maple Leafs, who's actually related through marriage to Stafford Smythe, has been sent to team doctors for a full evaluation. Uh, Mike says he hasn't been feeling well for the past 10 days or so, doesn't think he can play, so the Leafs are sending him to his doctors to see just what could be the problem. As uh, this week ended, there was no news on what Mike's problem was, but I'm sure this story has... uh, other consequences as uh, more becomes revealed. Blackhawks have lost defenseman Doug Jarrett for about a month. Uh, he underwent surgery to repair a badly dislocated shoulder. Uh, Doug's a good guy, uh, one of the uh, glue type of guys on the Blackhawks defense, holds that rear guard unit together. Very good defensive defenseman, flies under the radar a lot, and the Hawks are going to miss him. Of course, we can't let a week go by without an update from the California Golden Seals. Uh, this is some news about the deposed executives, Bill Torrey and Frank Selke Jr. The attorney for both of those fellows uh, revealed that a lawsuit was soon going to be filed uh, to cover or recover, I should say, the alleged unpaid expenses that uh, the two feel they are owed by the California Seals Hockey Club. Uh, when asked how quickly is it going to happen, Michael Fenner told the uh, Oakland Tribune very promptly, certainly within the next few weeks. So that's something Charles O'Finley has to look forward to. And, of course, we can't let a week go by without a Ned Harkins sighting. This time, the Red Wings coach has outlawed smoking by Detroit players in and around the team's dressing room. I really can't disagree with uh, having people stop smoking. But these uh, I don't think this is more about, well, we'll tell you what Ned Harkness actually said about this. Uh, he was questioned about his motives in this and said, I don't know any of my players who complain about my rules. The only people bothered by it are a couple of guys in the press. What my players think of me is all that I worry about. Now Harkness went on to say, if you don't have some kind of discipline on a team, you don't have much at all. And he said regarding the smoking that he doesn't want players to create a bad image of themselves in front of kids. He says kids need to idolize these type of people, so let's give them a good image and not a bad image. Harkness says that he never tells any of his players that they can't do anything. He just limits where they can do it. Harkness says, I don't think the players should smoke around locker rooms because of the kids around always seeking autographs. The players are the statement statesmen of the hockey world. 
Or, of course, this could be just Ned Harkness showing the players that he's the boss and they're not. And he's used to doing that with college kids who are very intimidated by the guy. National Hockey League players, not so much intimidated. A lot of people said when uh, Punch Imlach acquired Eddie Shack from the Los Angeles Kings for his Buffalo Sabres, uh-oh, there's going to be problems between these guys. Well, Eddie Shack says, oh, he's had his problems with Punch Imlach in the past. That's all behind them now. Eddie says, actually, I played eight years for Punch and didn't have any more trouble with him than with any other coach I ever played for. Eddie says he wasn't happy about leaving Los Angeles. He says he has a home there. And for some reason, though, he just wasn't playing with the Kings. Eddie says, I didn't play one full game this year, and I don't need that kind of aggravation. Eddie says he's very happy to get the chance to play with the Sabres. Imlach, by the way, also announced this week that the player to be named later in the Shaq and Duff trade going to the Kings would be defenseman Mike McMahon. McMahon, we understand, was not happy about that move and he threatened to not report to Los Angeles as well. One of the very pleasant surprises for the LA Kings this season is a left winger by the name of Bob Barry. He's a previously unknown quantity who was picked up in the offseason from the Canadians organization. Coach Larry Regan revealed what it took to get Barry from LA. There was never even a press conference about this deal. Uh, Regan said he's delighted with this move, he, uh, he says, we got him from the Canadians with the right to keep him for $30,000 if we liked him after we saw him at training camp. Regan says you can't beat such a deal. They got a guy for nothing just to bring him in to have a look at him. No risk involved. They didn't like him, send him back to Montreal. If they like him, they get him for about what they would have paid if they claimed him. On, on waivers and in fact Barry's uh, rise to prominence with the Kings was probably one of the reasons that both Eddie Shack and Dick Duff became expendable here's another Minnesota North Star note from later in the week rookie goalie Gilles Gilbert and assistant trainer Don Rose were injured in an automobile accident outside of Minneapolis and it totally wrecked Gilbert's brand new Mach 1 sports car uh, Jules was returning with Rose from a medical appointment to check uh, Gilbert's second case of tonsillitis within the past 10 days. There was a snowstorm going on and Gilbert's car struck a patch of black ice, skidded into a post, bounced into a car, then a truck, and then came to rest at the center guardrail. Fortunately for the two, the injuries com- uh, consisted of only bumps and bruises and the feeling was that Gilbert may only miss a game or two at most we've been hearing all these rumblings that the uh, city of calgary is going to get a western hockey league team maybe next year well the calgary herald reported this week that that's a very good possibility the western hockey league will place a vancouver canucks franchise or farm team i should say franchise in calgary the Herald says it even knows who's going to run this team next year, and that's going to be former NHLer Bert Olmsted, who just resigned his uh, post coaching an Alberta junior hockey team. You know, it's not often that uh, rookies make their NHL debut at the age of 31, but there is a fella doing it in the 1970-71 season. He's with the Philadelphia Flyers, and he's a fella by the name of Barry Ashby. 
Now, when the Flyers uh, finally latched on to Ashby last summer, they knew he had two very positive characteristics. One was that he shot from the right side, and the Flyers had nobody on their blue line defensive core that actually was a right-hand shot. And the other was Barry is very used to making the playoffs. He's not used to hanging up his skates in March of any uh, season. He'd been with the Hershey Bears, who make the playoffs every year in the American Hockey League, and the Flyers felt that experience would do well on their blue line. Flyers coach Vic Stasiuk is very impressed with Ashby. He says, game in and game out, Barry Ashby has been our best defenseman this season by far. Ashby's been getting a lot of ice time, mainly because he's the only right-hand shot. But he's also, uh, while a very good defensive defenseman, pretty good on the power play. And he and Andre Lacroix are playing the points on the power play these days. That's worked very well. Just the game we told you about earlier in the show, Lacroix scored three goals, two of them on the power play, with Ashby at the other point. Ashby says, you know, I'm not, I'm not playing any different now than I was four or five years ago with Hershey. I had heard rumors that somebody was going to draft me last summer, and I figured it was probably going to be Buffalo or Vancouver, but I was pretty surprised when it was Philadelphia, but I'm happy to be here. Barry Ashby's only previous uh, National Hockey League experience was 14 games at different times with the Bruins, who of course uh, owned the Hershey team, that was their farm team. Uh, he said, one night I got hit in Montreal and it landed on my Debasque, and it was a disc, and that October, which was in 1966, he had spinal fusion surgery. He wore brace for six months after that, but miraculously, the back got better, and it's finally led to Barry Ashby making the NHL as a regular at age 31. Well, if you looked at any of the game summaries for the St. Louis Blues in this past week, you saw Arbor on defense, and you go, what? Al's back? He's not coaching anymore? No, Al's not uh, resigning as coach. He's not returning as a player. The Blues acquired a defenseman by the name of John Arbor from the Vancouver Canucks uh, on the waiver for the waiver price this year, and he immediately joined the Blues and is taking a regular turn on their blue line. As the Philadelphia Flyers were about to leave Vancouver the other night to head to Oakland for a game, the flight was delayed and the players were alarmed to find out it was because of a bomb threat that had been called in for that particular Vancouver to Oakland flight. Well, of course, the plane was thoroughly searched. No explosive devices were found and the uh, team continued on to Oakland just a little bit late. But can you imagine how Bernie Perrant felt about that? Bernie, just a couple of weeks ago, had told reporters and the team that he was considering not flying anymore. He is so much bothered by airline flights. Can you imagine how Bernie felt on pins and needles all the way from Vancouver to Oakland? Bernie got by okay, but that was something that certainly had to grab Bernie's attention. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Pete Stemkowski being traded from the Red Wings to the Rangers, and he didn't want to go. Well, how's it going since Pete's decided to agree to join the Rangers? Well, Pete's fully recovered from the shoulder injury he suffered shortly after being acquired by the Rangers, and he's beginning to perform exactly the way 
General Manager Emil Francis expected him to. He's starting to stick with his nose in other people's business, so to speak, and the Rangers, who are tied with the Bruins for first place in the NHL, are reaping the benefits of Stemkowski's improved play. Pete has been put on a line with veteran Ron Stewart and left-winger Ted Irvin. He's the center on the line, and it was considered to be pretty much a, a checking line. But they've actually been going both ways very well. In three games they've been together, the line has scored five goals and compiled 13 scoring points. Now, when Trances came up, actually dreamed up this trio as a defensive gesture against the Bruins uh, a week ago Saturday, he was just seeking a restraint for Johnny Busick, who just seems to kill the Rangers. Uh, Busick, uh, Derek Sanderson, and Johnny McKenzie was the line that was killing the Bruins the most, it seemed. And so he put this threesome together to limit their ability to score on New York, and it's worked. In that first game that they played against the Bruins, he kept that line all of the scoring sheet altogether they did and limit them to just five shots on goal. And even more spectacular was the fact that Stemkowski and Irvin produced two of the goals that uh, fashioned that 3-3 tie against Boston. So Pete Stemkowski looks like he's arrived in New York. He's comfortable, he's happy, he's productive, and the Rangers are much better off for it. So that is our show this week, everyone. And what did we learn in this episode? We learned that the Montreal Canadiens finally ran out of patience with coach Claude Ruel and he's been replaced by assistant Al McNeil. We found out that Harold Ballard and Stafford Smythe are about to regain their positions atop the executive hierarchy of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Will that be a good thing or a bad thing? And we met Barry Ashby, an elderly rookie, making a name for himself with the Philadelphia Flyers. Next week, we'll have stories about the theft of the Stanley Cup from the Hockey Hall of Fame. The Maple Leafs complained to National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell about a newspaper column written by former general manager Punch Imlach. And we'll tell you how all that turned out. And Red Wings goalie Roy Edwards suffers a very serious injury and uh, we'll tell you what the injury is and why that could lead to a trade for a number one goalie and who the Red Wings have their eye on. And as well, we'll find out that the National Hockey League future of Mike Walton is very much up in the air. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole and we cannot thank him enough for all the hard work that he puts into this. Andy is now in the business of producing podcasts professionally, and you actually won't find anyone more professional than Andy in this business. If you're thinking of starting a podcast, please get a hold of me, and I'll hook you up with Andy, and he can put something great together for you. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, uh performs our intro and exit music they're in the studio right now recording their next cd and we can't wait to hear it other musical pieces and sound effects in the podcast are produced by andy cole as well our research comes from files from the toronto star the toronto global mail and of course the many publications found 
at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter every day at, at Hockey 50 Years and on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. Our WordPress site is Hockey50YearsAgo.com where we provide updates and links to the podcast. And of course, you can get the podcast anywhere where these fine programs can be found. Thanks again to all our Patreon subscribers and to everyone who tunes into this show. The 70-71 season is proving to be a most interesting National Hockey League campaign and we'll be with you all the way. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the-